This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 357, March 6, 1996. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, and Mark Rushdoony and I will begin by discussing the subject of property and society. Some years ago, when I was a student, this would be in the 1930s, I twice heard a sociologist lecture to uh, differing groups. One was a student group, and I've forgotten the nature of the other. He had done a very extensive bit of research on the difference between company towns and towns where people were on their own, working for themselves, either as uh, small uh, businessmen or farmers. And he said that the difference between the two cultures was dramatic. In the company town, very often the company was very generous, very thoughtful, did everything to provide the proper conditions, both housing, often better than people on their own had, recreation, health care, and so on. But in the company town, church going was low, very much lower than in the town of people who had their own homes or farms where private property prevailed. And so this sociologist's conclusion was we had better look to private property the independence and the freedom of the uh, small owners of businesses and farms, or we were going to be in trouble as a country. That everything indicated that the stability of society was far greater and more likely to be found in the freeholder. Now, at that time, his message was not too popular because the trend under the New Deal and Roosevelt was running in the opposite direction, in favor of statism, of federal controls and federal benefits. And it has continued that way. I don't know whatever became of his work. I believe it was published in some learned journal. I believe someone showed me a copy of it once. But what he had uh, called attention to was nothing new. An example of the same kind of thing was the Plymouth Colony and uh, Boston and New England as against Jamestown in Virginia. Carl Breidenbaugh uh, did write a book on Jamestown 1544 through 1699, which was published 
by the Oxford University Press in 1980. And in the course of uh, his book, he makes this statement. In writing to Sir Edwin Sandys in 1620, John Rolfe, and I believe Rolfe was the husband of Pocahontas, was more candid and specific in his remarks about the low caliber of the early James uh, Tonians. I speak on my own experience for these eleven years. I never amongst so few have seen so many false-hearted, envious, and malicious people, yea, among some who march in the better rank. Alderman Johnson stated that of the thousand colonists sent out in the first twelve years, those who succumbed, four out of five, were people for the most part of the meanest rank. At times, as Governor Dale conceded in 1611, every man almost laments himself of being here, and murmurs at his present state, though happily he would not be better in England. Well, as Breidenbaugh points out, the population of Jamestown was predominantly male. They were not there as families. They were there to get rich quick and to go back to England and lord it over others. They were improvident. They were contemptuous of the property rights of others. It was nothing unusual for a man who had only a few yards to go to be in the woods and pick up all kinds of dead branches to go instead to the neighboring house if it were vacant, waiting for somebody else to come to Jamestown and inhabit it, and to tear it apart and use it for firewood. That was the kind of contempt that uh, existed. So, it was a failure. People died more readily there than elsewhere. You remember in Plymouth Colony, when the governors in London at first wanted them to have a kind of socialistic society with no ownership by persons and working for the company, they died. They didn't survive. And against any instructions, they went ahead and gave to everyone some uh, private property. Another problem at Jamestown was that they were mostly males. There was almost no family life. They were all living to return to England rich. But they didn't want to work. They wanted indentured servants or slaves to work for them. As a result, it was a failure. The death rate was high, and everyone was in interested in show. Another scholar has written on uh, the Jamestown colony that the people there were more interested in becoming gentlemen than in being workers. Now, there were many, many people 
that uh, were in Plymouth and in Boston who were middle class, who had no background in farming. They were town folk. And yet, the minute they had land that was their own, they quickly learned how to work it and to make a profit. So there was a dramatic difference between the Virginia Jamestown colony and the New England colonies. Not until the Scotch-Irish came to Virginia shortly before the War of Independence did the character of things change dramatically. One of the sad facts about Southern history in this country is that it has not been properly written. It has been written as though the South was an area of aristocrats. Well, that's not true. That does an injustice to a large number of people. North Carolina, for example, had quite a number of Scottish settlers, rugged, independent people. They hated slavery, most of them. They wanted no part of it. But too little is written about that element in the South. And uh, you would think that all were plantation owners and uh, aristocrats. But the majority were sturdy, hard-working people. Their history in the making of the South needs to be written. And the South needs to go back and reassess its past and prize that which should be prized. Well, at any rate, we have a problem today in that everything is being done to destroy the meaning of private ownership. If you start a business or start a farm, you're in very deep trouble. Now, below us, we're up in the hill and mountain country, is the great San Joaquin Valley, one of the two richest areas in the world, an area inhabited by a variety of peoples of different backgrounds, Oriental and European, North and South Europe, and elsewhere. It is the richest farming area in the world. They're hardworking. They are successful. And yet today they face a problem which you may have noticed this week in the uh, Stockton Register. Grape uh, vines are among the most common forms of agricultural product. And yet, they're not allowed now to go out and drill a little hole six feet down to break up the soil and then to pop a little uh, piece of a branch to start a new plant there. And a man is currently facing court because environmental groups in Washington are determined that such things cannot be done. 
Now, this is absurd. They have no evidence that this is bad for the ground. They know that this has been done and is necessary for viniculture, and yet they are moving against it, just as they moved against one oriental farmer, because in the course of uh, disking his field, he supposedly killed a kangaroo rat. And that is supposed to be an endangered species. Well, I wish all rats were endangered species. <laughs> At any rate, he was taken to jail and he's facing a very, very prohibitive and long battle to keep from losing everything he has. And he may wind up losing it because of the cost of the battle. This is the kind of thing that today is destroying property. And it is destroying, therefore, freedom and the character of the family. Well, with that introduction, Douglas, you're very well versed in this area. Why don't you... Uh, well, what you're describing is a, a new form of slavery unique to the United States. Um, property, in effect has uh, already been confiscated 100% through taxation, plus yes. the fact you cannot pass it on uh, intergenerationally. Uh, so you have a situation where after a generation or two of development of a, uh, a winery or uh, a, a farming operation, uh, if they're successful, they're punished by not being able to pass it on to yes. the heirs who are the only ones who are perhaps uniquely qualified to operate that farming operation because of their experience with it and right. the, the mm -hmm. information that's been handed down to them by their parents and grandparents, and the government destroys that productivity by interrupting the chain of title uh, through uh, the estate tax. And uh, in the vast majority of cases, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, sons and daughters, the offspring of these two or three generation farm uh, families are forced to sell it in order to get enough cash to pay the estate taxes. Yes. And uh, that destroys the working capital for the uh, for the farming operation. The farming operation generally passes to either a uh, uh, a developer who destroys the agricultural use of the land and builds houses on it. Uh, and the government likes that because they don't really care where the taxes come from. They get this big front-end payoff from the estate tax, and then they get the continuing taxes from the property taxes for the homes that are built on the property. So the government has no interest uh, either short-term or long-term and seeing that these farming operations continue, uh, except uh, and as a practical matter, since a lot of the fruit and vegetables now are being imported into the United States from other countries, they don't have to worry about keeping their own bellies full any longer. Uh, so uh, the farmers can't use that as a, uh, uh, as a defense uh, uh, with the uh, politicians. The politicians are only looking for tax income so that they can distribute to the constituency that keeps them in power. 
And so the long-term interests of the country uh, through this confiscation of property are diminished, continually being diminished generation by generation. You're seeing in the San Joaquin Valley uh, thousands of acres of, of uh, rich farmland that is uh, irreplaceable. I mean, you just don't go just anywhere and find farmland that you can grow stuff on uh, close enough to water, uh, sources of water, uh, that is uh, e commercially viable. But the government doesn't seem to care. They would sooner ship this productivity to other countries, such as Chile, uh, South America, which is where most of our fruit comes from now, particularly during the wintertime. So... Um, uh, you, you've got an internationalization uh, going on and uh, these farm jobs, once they're lost, they're lost forever. Once they build houses on that farmland, it's, it's over with. The, the family farm has become an anachronism. It no longer exists. Uh, any family that does have a farming operation is incorporated. Um, They've generally set up trusts if they're large enough and uh, uh, have enough financial uh, wherewithal. They've set up trusts to pass the farm on to the to the offspring, uh, assuming they can get them ed uh, educated properly to be able to uh, uh, keep it commercially viable. Because now it's very high tech, mm -hmm. and it, they they have become commodity brokers more than they become farmers. Uh, most successful farming operations now keep very, very close tabs on the uh, commodity markets uh, because this uh, determines uh, totally what they're going to plant, how much they're going to plant, and uh, they're very, very market-oriented now. The, uh, uh, the, the politicians really have no interest in private property any longer. It's simply... Uh, booty uh, to be uh, seized mm -hmm. and the laws now as you mentioned earlier are being carefully slowly and carefully crafted uh, to make it uh, uh, total slavery uh, slaves don't own property slaves work on other people's property and the other people is now the government and we're the slaves and anybody who thinks that uh, their money is theirs, the money that they earn is theirs, or that their property is theirs, uh, is living in a fantasy world because it no longer exists in the United States. The, we, are, we are fed the illusion. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, most of the country is not awakened to that fact. We, we have an illusory constitution that no longer exists. Uh, we have the illusion of private property and we have the illusion of freedom. And uh, people just haven't awakened from the dream. Well, you were talking about uh, <clears throat> inheritance taxes, uh, Douglas, and I was thinking of the scriptures and of Naboth and of his absolute refusal to sell his mm -hmm. vineyard that was handed down from generation to generation in the family as property should be and of course he was killed for his fidelity to his faith and to his fathers that's just one example in the word of God of the state's desire to seize property 
And of course today we have, well, one have had for many centuries, the problem of eminent domain. Um, Rush was mentioning before the taping, I think just a couple of days before this taping, the Supreme Court arrived at a decision that the uh, state may um, seize particular property used in the commission of a crime, whether that uh, property is owned by an individual who committed the crime or not. And of course, uh, I remember several years ago in Ohio, there was the seizure law regarding automobiles. And uh, Any excuse will do. Any excuse will do. That's precisely correct. And uh, a state that does that, well, property is a religious phenomenon. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Mm -hmm. So any entity that attempts to seize property summarily in that way is really claiming to be God walking the earth. And that's what we have today in uh, the modern state. There's much more we can say, but I'll let it go there right now. Well, the um, custodianship is not with the individual. The property isn't going to be used for the right purpose. And we talked about Jamestown. The colonies that were planned from from Europe were notoriously uh, poorly managed. There wasn't only the time lag, but they tried to impose a system that sounded good to the planners, but that in reality didn't work out. And when men weren't free to pursue their own interests, and their own well-being and to develop property on their own, the colonies didn't thrive. The Carolinas, I believe it were, were set up on a grand feudal system that never worked. Uh, the, uh, it was an attempt to ins- uh, institute a feudal-type system in uh, New York. In France, it was uh, basically all the land was owned by the government. There was no incentive to go to France. You'd be a company employee and you gained no permanent interest in the colony. You didn't, couldn't own private property because the government of France didn't want to give up any yeah. of the entire half of a continent to individuals, lest individuals might benefit. Yeah. And I think we've come kind of full circle to that attitude. They don't want to allow any freedom. They don't care if it's more productive that people are allowed to use their own uh, land. They don't care if it's going to produce more tax revenues. It's the whole concept of control, just like where we were 15 years ago with the whole concept of of Christian schools and the trials. The concept was control. Who's in charge? Who controls the schools? It had nothing to do with which schools produce the best results. It was the issue of control. Well, we control nothing anymore. We don't control our children. We don't control our property. We don't control our own lives. We are totally controlled. We are enslaved by a government which is practicing organized crime on a grand scale never before seen on the face of this earth. Well, we have bought into a socialistic idea of communal property, which is why there's so much state land. What percentage of California is uh, owned by the federal government? It's it's over 40 percent. Nearly, yeah, almost. Uh, it's over 90 in Nevada. Exactly. Virtually all the Sierra Nevadas, for instance, are owned by uh, the national yes, government. That's right. And yet, when you hear about the environmentalist talk, they have to protect the few privately held forest yes. reserves from those who would destroy them and abuse them. It reminds me, I was on a missionary trip to Alaska several 
years ago. There were some Indians there in Rush. Of course, you work with the Indians. Maybe you can add to this also. But those who lived outside Anchorage in some of the main areas essentially lived communally. And if they wanted something, they would just go in somebody else's house and take it. And then when they moved into Anchorage or Kenai or elsewhere and they did that, of course, they'd be grabbed up and thrown in jail. But uh, that whole concept is, is uh, unfortunately, the idea at least, is uh, really seeping into our culture that uh, the state owns this and uh, private property is really, really under assault. And it's a religious tactic uh, by people who are at war with God. Well, the environmentalists really have become the shock troops or sort of the marines of the, the world socialist movement. Uh, anybody who thinks that they care a whit about the spotted owl or any salamander or bug is deluding themselves. Yeah, it's a ruse. The, bottom, right. at the, at the end game is control over all resources. When you control all resources, you in effect have invoked total slavery. That's right. Well, I just read recently, again, the Communist Manifesto, and of course, Marx and Engels put it out so plainly. They said, uh, we disdain to hide our purposes, and yet uh, what's so strange is, is the United States claims to be anti-Marxist and communist, and communists are the boogeyman, and yet to a large extent it was frightening to read again what they said, because we have implemented much of their uh, pattern here in the U.S. Although we've taken the fascist model of allowing private ownership, mm-hmm. yet mm-hmm. no so private control. Yeah. Yes, you can own the property, but we'll yeah. tell you what in, to do with name it. Only, yeah. You yeah. pay for the privilege of calling it yours. There are some lights on the horizon, though, as we speak. Uh, Patrick Buchanan uh, is, and we're not endorsing any particular candidate, but it's good to see that in his particular candidacy that people are wanting to take back property and uh, that sort of thing. And I think there is a um, there's a reaction against this darkness that we're talking about, although we've certainly got a long way to go. And I think that there's a built-in limitation of, even though technically we can't control our property, the, the powers that be are limited by their ability to implement their own controls. Politi- and they are sporadic. Yeah, politicians can't tell you what's good for you. People have to understand what's good for themselves, uh, if they don't understand what God's plan is for people, all of the pronouncements by politicians in the world aren't going to amount to a hill of beans. There's no man on a white horse that's going to ride in to save us. Not a mortal man, anyway. Well, that's why socialism doesn't work, because you you can't predict the market, you can't predict individual decisions. It always fails. It must always fail. Because a top-down system in the economy just doesn't work. You can't take into account individual decisions in the market. This country, as far as looking at the body politic, is probably one of the most ignorant, economically ignorant people on the face of this earth. They don't understand how the free market system works. They don't understand free market enterprise. They don't understand proprietorship. And now they don't even understand ownership. Yeah, and that can be seen in... There's a problem, and constantly the answer is, well, what can the state do? It's never what can individual private citizens do. Yeah. It's obvious there's there's a problem, so, well, obviously the state has to take care of it. They, well, can't, they can't even think another People terms. have been brainwashed to the extent that they can't think any other way. That's, that's the problem. They, They've been conditioned to think that They way. have been conditioned from preschool before even kindergarten. That's now. right. They are, they are um, propagandized from the age of about three years old on. 
So they don't know anything else. That's right. Well, one of the things I've tried to stress year in and year out to groups as well as to reporters is that we at Calcedon do not believe in the state or the church or a select group of uh, men running the world or the country. That for us, the basic government is self-government. Yes, amen. And that bewilders them. Well, how will you keep things falling, from falling apart if the state is not running things? They're so used to thinking in terms of statism that uh, it baffles them right. that anyone can conceive of a social order in which the state is a minor factor. And they sometimes uh, are ready to think I'm an anarchist. Yeah. But uh, uh, limitations on the state are really inconceivable to them because the state has replaced God in their thinking. Their opposition to your point of view only shows how far the mindset has gone in the in the mind of the people. They can e can't even conceive of an alternative to statism. I'd like to bring out another aspect of this problem. Earlier I did stress the importance of property in the whole uh, fabric of a responsible society. But I'd like to go back behind that. It was John Locke who, with his treatises on civil government, brought about the priority of property in a social order. In part, he reflected his Puritan family background, but in part, he reflected the Enlightenment. Because what he did was to take away priority from God and place it on the human scene in the form of property. And uh, the culmination of that development regarding property purely humanistically was Karl Marx. Because with Karl Marx, the maximum utility of property came about with its socialization. So if you separate property from God and his law and thou shalt not steal and stewardship, you've destroyed ultimately the basis of property because if you begin with property, it's easy for men to come along and say, you created a monster society with all the emphasis on uh, land and things and money. So what good is your society? It is dehumanizing. And this was the argument of the uh, socialists against the Lockeans. Well, I remember there was a big dose of that in the universities in the 1950s. The, the anti-materialism Mm -hmm. uh, movement came just prior to the anti-establishment movement of the 1960s. We have to understand right-wing enlightenment is no better than the left-wing enlightenment. And Rush, you were talking about Locke and 
course's idea, which eventually became the secular social contract, mm -hmm. which did pave the way for just what you were talking yes. about, socialism. There has to be a biblical idea, the biblical idea, of a property as stewardship. Yes. We don't actually, we speak of private property, of course, in the human sphere, and it's right to do so. But property belongs to God, and he's given it to individuals to steward for him. And so... Um, that's precisely correct. Isn't it interesting that that's how the federal government sees their role over public land? Absolutely. Well, what happened was that with Locke, the Puritan and biblical idea of the covenant between God and man yes. was replaced by the social contract Absolutely. between man and man. Absolutely. So a good doctrine was taken and falsified. Yes. And it's no wonder that in time the people who despised everything Locke stood for were able to utilize the foundations he laid for a humanistic socialist society. And statists are anti-covenantal to the core. And that's what you were talking about to earlier, Douglas, with the inheritance taxes. They hate the idea that property can be transferred from generation to generation. For them, the earth belongs to the living, as Jefferson said. And boy, that point was well made in a book, and I just can't remember the title, Origins of American Radicalism. I think uh, Princeton published it, uh, and I can't remember the author, but he pointed out that very thing, Rush, the, the progression. But they're anti-covenantalists. Uh, they believe you have to be reinventing ownership of property every generation. And that's why they have the inheritance taxes. They hate the covenant. They hate the idea that godly people would hand down property and other things from generation to generation and exercise dominion. That's what they despise. Well, the government's got to get their cut. You know, they they always step in for the broker fee. They have yeah. to. They in in each generation between each generation they have to reestablish their uh, primacy by taking a cut of the of the proceeds. Well, they, they in their heart are anti-dominionists, or they want to take their own dominion. Uh, that's why they have to assault uh, property, because God has given the promises in Deuteronomy and elsewhere that his people, if they're obedient, will exercise extensive dominion, including dominion over property, and will you steward, uh, you will steward it well and operate with it wisely. Well, they have to tax the property so that doesn't happen. Ultimately, the war against property is the war against God because God is the owner of all property. Well, nowadays, small business people are confronted with federal income tax, state income tax. They pay a tax on a license simply for the privilege of, of operating a business. What percentage of the income, is it nearly 50 now? That's, when you count up all of the taxes, it's nearly 48.5 by last count and rising. That's just unconscionable. Uh, you've got you have to pay a tax in the form of a business license tax. Then you're taxed on the tools of production, hand tools, equipment, Absolutely. and so forth. Plus the hidden taxes. Uh, you are an unpaid tax collector, yeah. and therefore taxed further. You're taxed by virtue of inflation. Uh, anything that you acquire right. evaporates before you get a chance to spend it. That's right. And the, the, nowadays, the definition of being successful in business is that you retain just enough money to keep from starving to death, but yeah. you never make enough to be prosperous. That is no capitalization. That's right. 
And if you're self-employed, I think, Douglas, isn't it even worse because you have to, particularly in the case of the Social Security, uh, aren't you sort of doubly penalized? You have to keep out both both portions, the what the what the employer would pay. Well, plus certainly. Your own. Sure. Yeah. Which really is a drag on entrepreneurs. Well, it, it, it soaks up the working capital at such a rate that it's extremely difficult to grow a business. Yeah. And I suspect that uh, this may be in, in done hand in hand because the banks, you know, love to loan money uh, to businesses. The Small yeah. Business Administration loves to loan money to businesses, and uh, they they don't care if they fail because they know there'll be a fresh another fresh crop that they can own uh, loan money to, and uh, c- they create slavery. There's another point I was thinking of. Uh Rush, you know, Richard Weaver's book, Ideas Have Consequences. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it for several years, but he has a chapter in there on property, and he laments the idea of property getting away from the uh, tangential, uh, hard, hard idea of hard property, tangible property, and uh, it was a fascinating point. I can't remember the whole argument, but he was talking about stocks and shares and speculative, prop- speculative property and that sort of thing. I think that's another when people talk today about making money, it's, it's oftentimes in the stock market, bonds, and away from tangible mm-hmm. property. I thought that was a fascinating point. We have a problem where property is concerned today in that too many Christians, in radical contradiction to the Bible and to God's law, downgrade property as though things material were to be despised. Neoplatonic, yeah. That's an ascetic view that is out of place in yes. the church. And because of this, there is no interest in defending property. There is no preaching on what God has to say about stewardship and right. ownership. There is no teaching of children yes, that's on right. uh, of God and property. It used to be we were told when I was very young about the relationship between our faith and commandments such as thou shalt not steal, proper respect for what was somebody else's. It was all regarded as religiously and morally important. No more. No provident or long-term thinking. I was just talking to someone recently that was talking about a relative, and I said, well, doesn't this person think about when his or her money is going to run out in five years? Oh, no. Oh, no. That's There's just not that way of thinking among too many Christians today. It's no, all, Of no. course, the problem is a defective uh, eschatology in many cases. Yes. I think the rapture will come soon. But this downgrading of property is, is really a pagan, an old ancient, well, ancient Greek idea, and uh, it's... A shame that Christians, so many Christians, hold to it. It's a denial of the authority of God in all spheres of life, including the material. Well, they're gamblers. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Sure, they're gambling on the outcomes. That's right. I've actually heard some of them say, uh, run up your credit card debt, run up your debt, because the Antichrist is going to get the bills anyway. So just mm-hmm. run up your... You don't have to spend wisely. And uh, that's actually frowned upon by many churches. Um, if I were to go into some of those churches and preach a sermon on the problem of debt or provident use of property, they would say, well, that's not spiritual. You know, that's mm-hmm. not inspirational. 
And I would point out, that's true. Yeah. And I pointed out from the Word of God, but this is what the Word of God says. Well, they, no, we want to read John 3.16 or Acts chapter 2 or something. I said, well, this is just as much a Word of God as the, the Word of God as those are. They don't want any bad news. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Nor do they want to face their uh, perhaps own shortcomings. And that's one reason the church is so impotent today. The church is so retreatist. Uh, because the wicked are dominionist today. They eventually will not be successful. But they are. God has permitted them to be successful. because in this time to scourge his church. Because she's been so unfaithful. Then too, debt has also created a, an attitude in people's minds that they, they realize that they really don't own the property anyway. That they're only really, it's really only an investment to them. And Good they point. think of property as equity. And Good equity point. is something I'll right. always can pull out at a later time and maneuver it here and maneuver it there That's so right. I can build more equity. And they think of property as equity and something to be exploited. Right, right now, the value of property has been dropping. And yet realtors find that owners who need to sell are unwilling to be realistic because to them they're always supposed to come out ahead. That inflation should increase the value on paper of their uh, property so that they are perpetually on the up and up going onto higher ground as it were. Well, they're they're playing with uh, dynamite. I mean, leverage is is a bomb that can blow up in your face. Uh, lots of people have destroyed whatever they had by getting over leveraged, uh, but yet they believe that's the way to be all the time. They they think that makes invulnerable them invulnerable. In fact, a lot of companies during the 1980s leveraged themselves to the hilt, got so far in debt so that they couldn't be taken over uh, during the the. Yeah. Uh, the leverage buyout uh, and merger mania in the 1980s. So debt became uh, the vogue thing in business. Yeah, God will not be mocked. The debt culture is a slave culture, and especially when Christians do that. Well, just read in Deuteronomy chapter 28 what yes. uh, God says. It's so plainly, if you're obedient, you will be a creditor and not a debtor, and vice versa, of course, if you're disobedient. And that is a sad commentary on the modern church. This is something that's got to be preached. This is why many... Christian organizations like ours who could be doing better financially and we need it. Many Christians are so far in debt and slaves to debt they can't support things that they should be supporting. Have mortgaged their future. When property is not seen as an area of dominion and it's seen as just equity too, it spills over into the, the business aspect. Corporations are owned by people who have stock, who are willing to get in, and it's a transient ownership. Right. The management is also transient, and the management gets outrageous sums of money in the hopes that they can work their, um, you know, Harvard Business School, <laughs> you know, magic yeah. and make a profit, and they're gone in a few years with a huge retirement package, and one day the employees wake up and say, "You've been sold." We're shutting right. this factory down. You're out of a job, and they wonder what happened, because nobody thinks of a company anymore as something that that's right, a kind of a, a responsibility to the employees, something to be proud of. The ownership of a company, it's it means nothing. That's right. One of the things that I have seen in my 80 years 
is a change in perspective with regard to property and uh, the care thereof, to put it in general terms. In the 20s and 30s, people were very careful not to trash up their place. Those were years when people lived, as compared to today, poorly. But uh, I think there would have been quite a hue and cry in any neighborhood I lived at that time. If any one of us uh, children dropped a candy wrapper or a piece of scratch paper on the sidewalk or the street, it wasn't tolerated. It was regarded, really, as a sin. Well, Europeans have always considered Americans trashy. Mm-hmm. They come over here and they see trash along the side of the highway. You, you know, uh, what little traveling I did in Europe in the 1950s, and this is, you know, right after the war when things people were still kind of reeling and trying to get back on their feet. You never found a scrap of paper anywhere. I traveled in Italy and Austria mm-hmm. and France and Germany. You didn't see a, a cigarette butt, nothing, alongside the in a railway station or uh, in the uh, alongside the road. You never saw a scrap of paper blowing in the wind. I mean, it was almost eerie. It's it's like the the uh, you know the illusion that they try to create at Disneyland. You know, they have this army of gnomes that go out in the middle of the night and clean this clean the, up the garbage that people drop during the day. You mentioned earlier. Uh, rush about the improvidence of the uh, men in Jamestown who would go next door, and I was thinking about the parallel to public housing. Yes. Uh, in this country, you know, where yes. people have no ownership in something, they don't take care of it. And That's if you right. want a classic example, you just take a look at any public housing project anywhere in this country. Absolutely. And it, it the the it's a the stark cran- contrast is unavoidable. The That's only right. ones that have ever been a success are the ones that they uh, turn over to the owners and yeah. say, it's yours now. Do something with it. Government. Then they run out the trash. Then yeah. they run out the people who, who right. destroy yeah. it. Yeah. That's right. Well, maybe government should give up more often. Absolutely. What I've found in my own experience and studies is that uh, one of the worst things that can happen to a people is war. Now, granted, there are times, not many, but there are times when men have to go to war. Mm -hmm. But what uh, happens when you go to war? Well, I saw it with World War II. In effect, we were throwing away tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of young lives. That's right. And we created a throwaway culture. I recall after we went to war, seeing with a shock how much paper trash there would be on the streets and roadsides. Mm-hmm. It was suddenly a different mentality. It was as though, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow mm-hmm. we die. So what's uh, some trash on the sidewalk or on a country road? And at least the environmental movement has in part led to the cleanup of that kind of trash. But I don't think it's properly motivated. No. We have to get back to a religious respect for uh, the earth. 
And I find it particularly noteworthy that uh, Geneva and Switzerland, because of the influence of Calvin, stand out because of the uh, emphasis on uh, cleanliness, on avoiding uh, trashing up anything that so marks the people there. And in Germany, we forget that the Black Forest is a creation of Lutheranism. The Black Forest has, in different times in history, when they've had extreme cold, virtually disappeared and has been replanted. And Lutheranism, in particular, stressed the reforestation of various areas of Germany with dramatic results. And uh, that's an aspect of our Christian heritage we do need to recognize and stress. In this country, uh, the problem is that too much of it, uh, this kind of emphasis, has come from the left yes, and not from Christians. And they're too prone to exaggerate. You can go back to 1860 and 70 and you find people saying that in another 10 or 20 years the forests of America are all going to disappear. Well, we have more woodland now than we did then and more now than we did in 1920 and more now than we had in 1950 because trees are a renewable resource. Well, I assume that nobody looks out the window when they fly in an airplane. You yeah. go anywhere in this country and you fall asleep looking at trees in mm -hmm, almost right. any direction you go. Except in the Plain States. And the Plain States were stripped of trees by the buffalo. Mm -hmm. The buffalo would come down from Canada in huge herds of 100,000 each herd. Six, eight, or more herds. Nothing would live when they got through. Not a tree would be left standing. Well, look at what the elephants do to the forests in Africa. Yes, they're destroying portions of Africa because we've talked so long about how the elephant has to be saved and uh, now they're in great numbers. They still claim that they're disappearing, but they're destroying the forest. Well, they, the, the elephants are dying for lack of food. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, in this country, we've not been as responsible, even though right now we're a more Christian country than any in Europe, but they have had a long tradition of Lutheranism and uh, Calvinism insisting on the proper care of God's creation. Well, we have a throwaway culture today. One reason for that is because Products tend to be made a lot more cheaply, as you well know, than yes. the rest, as you know, both of you, uh, than they were a number of years ago. Things are made, more disposable things are made, and therefore people tend not to take care of those things. That's also a short-term indication of short-term thinking rather than long-term thinking. Human well, beings, how, children, have become disposable. Uh, absolutely. I know it hurt me when I first realized uh, that... Uh, when Calcedon's 
adding machine needed replacing uh, or needed repairs that it was cheaper to replace it. They no longer repaired adding machines. Yeah. I don't know whether they even use adding machines much now with the computers and all. Let me tell you something else that I'm associated with in the electronics industry. Uh, when I first started out 45 years ago in electronics, the National uh, Manufacturers Association in electronics mandated that in order to be a member in good standing, you had to provide uh, parts, replacement parts, for all any product that you put on the market for a minimum of seven years. Today, you don't find that. That would be laughable today. You, you can't even find the company, much less the, the right. parts. You know, they go, they'll give you an 800 number, and uh, uh, you call up the 800 number that's on the warranty card, and it's been disconnected, and there's no, you know, there's no forwarding uh, number. That's so right. it's totally disposable. There is no, they, they do the very minimum to uh, create the illusion that there's a warranty in the product, but when it comes down to getting something fixed, ha-ha. Well, the joke's even, on you. Even the so-called classification durable goods. I say, where are they? Yeah, so right. Durable yeah, goods. Name on it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yes. When my uh, brother reached junior high age, he began to sell magazines. In those days, the Saturday Evening Post was sold at yeah. uh, streetcars by mm -hmm. newsboys. And he saved enough to buy my mother a good refrigerator, which lasted her virtually her lifetime. And now that is almost unheard of. It was a heavy thing. Uh, now they're much lighter weight. Well, they, they discovered uh, uh, engineered obsolescence or designed obsolescence as being the key to consumerism. The, yeah. uh, you know, the, the famous story in industry about the Hoover vacuum cleaner that, that uh, was built so well that it put the company out of business. And that was a lesson that was not lost on a lot of manufacturing yeah. firms in this country. So they begin to teach in the universities, engineering students, how to scientifically design products where everything would break at the same time. They do life yeah. tests on every component in automobiles, etc., and they can tell you practically to the hour when a generator or a starter or something else is going to fail in an automobile. They know exactly what their replacement parts, profits are going to be uh, if, a, if a car uh, even lasts that long uh, to the point where anybody wants to, uh, to fix it. Because not, not very many people take care of an automobile anymore. They don't intend to keep it any longer than about three years. That's about the point where you get between 70 and 100,000 miles on it, and it needs a major engine overhaul, so they get rid of it. And the manufacturers know that. You know, another factor I should mention quickly is inflation is a disincentive to be provident. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Why put money in the bank when uh, it's, uh, the currency will be inflated and it's not going to be worth anything? Yes. Inflation is stealing. And it's, of course, that's another assault on property in long Only term. the government benefits from inflation. That's right. Since they are the, the ones that have the primary uh, incentive, it's uh, logical to assume that they're the ones who create it. That's right, and they're thieves. Yes, I can remember when I was given a present, which in its day was better than half a month's salary for the best-paid 
California school teachers. I was given a war bond as a present. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly realized a little after the war that it wasn't even a, a fifth or a sixth of a month's salary. So I cashed it in. Mm -hmm. I had grown up with gold and silver and uh, now suddenly you had money that was uh, great at depreciating. Well, does anyone have a last comment or two to make before we conclude our session? Well, my comment would, is that people had better learn what property really is, uh, uh, God's definition of what property really is. And uh, they had better learn that uh, paper money is worthless. Uh, and uh, there's a, a big awakening, uh, I think, right around the corner. The uh, news is saying that people are plunging paper dollars into the stock market at an unprecedented rate. They're setting new records every week. And that uh, historically has been the telltale sign of a big blow-off. Yeah, and people are going to lose their shirt. I shall never forget, and I'll close with this, this missionary in China, when the old Kuomintang collapsed, describing the scene in downtown Shanghai as rich Chinese went from place to place with uh, baskets full of their wealth, paper money, and it was now worthless. And he described this one very wealthy man sitting on the curb in front of the bank, crying as he looked at the basket full of paper money. And he said at that time, with an American silver dollar, you could buy a great deal. Well, our time is up. Thank you all for listening and God bless you.